You can divide the world into two categories. There are those on the one hand who are unbelieving and are rebels towards God. And then on the other side are those who are believing and are submissive to God. But this is the fundamental divide between everybody in the world. You are on one side or the other. And in fact, the Bible says that Jesus divides the world this way, according to Matthew 25, 31 through 46. In chapter 34 and chapter 35 of Isaiah, there's a contrast between the different conditions that these two groups of people are in. In chapter 34, God tells the unbelieving rebels from the nations of their condition. And he says they are in a terrible condition. They are under God's wrath and therefore are going to face God's judgment. You see, God is the perfect ruler. And because he is the perfect ruler, therefore he is going to bring judgment on all of those who rebel against his rule. And the whole entirety of chapter 34 of Isaiah is about God's wrath and his judgment that is coming upon those who rebel against him through unbelief. In chapter 35, on the other hand, God tells believers from all the nations of their condition. And he says they are in a very good condition because they are under God's favor. Therefore, they're going to embrace and enjoy and delight in the fullness of God's salvation. Because God is the perfect ruler, therefore all who are under his authority, all who are under his reign, are going to experience the fullness of his grace and his mercy and his love. Those who are under his favor are going to experience the goodness of their king and his rule. The whole chapter 35 of Isaiah is all directed to explaining the greatness of this salvation that is coming to all who are believing and therefore under God's favor. So really, chapter 35 can only be understood in contrast to chapter 34. You see, the darkness of chapter 34 and the judgment that God is bringing upon all those rebels who are unbelieving can only be seen in its grandeur and its glory in contrast to chapter 35. Chapter 35 brings out the glory of God's salvation in contrast to chapter 34. And it shines with brightness in contrast to the darkness of chapter 34. If you're a believer, what effect should the reminder of your good condition have on you today? Well, it should encourage you. It should remind you that God is for you. It should bring great joy to your heart. It should bring great encouragement to your soul. That's what this chapter is all about. Do you need encouragement today? And if you're a believer, you would say, yes, I do. Every believer needs encouragement. Well, guess what? God is the best one to lead us to where encouragement is found. He knows how to bring us encouragement. He knows what to say to us that brings the greatest encouragement. And that encouragement is found in God's word. We don't need the cheap anecdotes of this world. 
that we hear all the time, we need to hear encouragement from God's word because that is the best encouragement we can find. Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35 as I read this passage. Please join me as I read it. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You need to be encouraged today. And you need to be encouraged by seeing the greatness of the glory of the salvation that is coming to you. And we see this in verses 1 through 7 and verse 10. Right now, because we are in under the curse, we can say that we are in verse 1, where we see the wilderness, the desert, the dry land. We are in this condition right now. And the glory of God can only faintly be seen in the world around us. And it can only be seen by faith. You see, God put the world under the curse because of man's sin and rebellion against him. What was blossoming is now filled with thorns and thistles. Where there was health and strength, now there is a lack of hearing, a lack of eyesight, inability to see, lameness. There is suffering and there is death. All the problems in the world are the result of God's judgment on us, are the result of the curse that we see all around us today. And the curse is a constant reminder that things are not right between us and God. There is something wrong. All God has to do is remove his gracious hand and chapter 34 comes in its fullness of its force. And we are left in hell, the judgment of God. God has left us only glimpses of his glory today. But what we see here is marvelous, that everything will one day be transformed to perfectly reflect the glory of God. And that is coming. All nature will be transformed to perfectly reflect God's glory. We see this in verses 1 through 2. Look at the glorious transformation that we are told is coming to us. 
The dry land will become glad. The desert will rejoice. From the dry desert, blossoms will come forth. They will cover everything. Creation itself will exhibit a mood of joy that is expressed through singing. There is this joyful singing that comes from creation itself to God. The earth will be given the glory of Lebanon. That has to do with the great cedars. The earth will be given the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, for, which is known for its rich plains. This reminds us, we see this all the time in the spring, don't we? Every time spring comes, it reminds us of this glorious transformation that is coming. We see it around us today, don't we? It's almost as if we can smell the beauty. We can, we can see the beauty around us. What was death is now coming to life. And we see a little taste of this every time spring rolls around. We're seeing it right now. And all of this is poetic language that it helps us to understand the greatness of the glory that is coming. You see, it is not literally that creation is going to sing, nor that Lebanon is literally going to be transplanted. But this is how we would understand something that is incomparably great, incomprehensibly great. This language helps us to understand something we otherwise could not comprehend. It is so great and so marvelous. But not only nature itself will be transformed, but we also see that you will be transformed. You will be transformed to perfectly reflect the glory of God. We see this in verses 5 through 6. You will undergo this incredible transformation where there was the danger of blindness, of deafness, of lame body parts, of our tongues not able to speak. Now there will be no danger of such conditions. And we will be radically transformed. Not only that, but you'll undergo a radical spiritual transformation. Your eyes will see his glory perfectly. Your ears will hear glory when you hear of God. Your lame parts will now perfectly function for the glory of God. Your heart will desire God perfectly. You will sing his praises with your tongue perfectly like you never have before. And you will be wholly restored. You see, nature will also be transformed to provide for your needs so that you can perfectly reflect God's glory with your life. And we see this in verses 6 through 7. You see, the earth in some ways fails to produce adequately what we need. We find ourselves unable to do what we want to do in service to God because the earth is under the curse. Instead of the burning heat of chapter 34, remember chapter 34, the burning heat that covered the earth? And remember the jackals that lived on the earth because people couldn't survive? It was uninhabitable for people, for humans. Now the land will produce waters and it will be lust and glorious and everything will be transformed to provide sufficiently for us who dwell in it. This would have been really easy to understand for the people who were reading this in the biblical days. They would have lived near the desert they would have seen the desert. They would have understood the desert. And this picture would have been magnificent and glorious. 
of the lust, the lush waters that would come upon the earth. What is truly amazing is that in some ways, all these things have been experienced in some way or shape or form through the ministry of Jesus Christ. God with us. We see this in his life, every part of this in some way in his life. Where do you see these things fulfilled in Christ? Well, you see Jesus healed every kind of malformity. He healed the blind. He healed the deaf, the mute, the lame. He even raised the dead. Incredible. Jesus also forgave sins. He brought about spiritual life through his death on the cross. He conquered the curse. He opened the eyes of the blind to see his glory. He opened the ears of those who could not hear him so that they could hear of his glory. And he caused voices to sing praises to God as they're intended to do. And actually, if you remember, one of the most concrete examples of this was the lame man who was healed by Peter and John in Acts chapter 3, verse 8. Remember, uh, in the name of Jesus, they said, they healed him, and he got up and started leaping and praising God. And that's exactly what we see is going to happen here in this passage. The lame will leap and praise God. Jesus even described the ministry of the Spirit of God with terms of water, life-giving water. Listen to John 7, verse 38 through 39. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Throughout the scriptures, we see similar references to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, referring to waters gushing out, life-giving waters that would come from the Spirit. And we even continue to see this transformation, this glorification, this kingdom of God among us every time someone is saved. According to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, listen to this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is a foretaste of the kingdom of God, and we see it today all around us when people are being saved. We see this great kingdom transformation all around us. Now, the fact that God would come and would not immediately bring the fullness of the kingdom was largely hidden from the view of those in the Old Testament. They were expecting the kingdom of God to come in its fullness. They're expecting it to come immediately. They didn't expect this already of the kingdom and not yet kingdom that we see and we have already today. They thought it would come immediately in its fullness. Someone compared this to two mountaintops. You know, sometimes if you're looking at a mountaintop, you can think it's one mountain or two mountains that are fairly close to each other. But then you look at another angle and you see there's a valley between them. There's two different mountaintops that are separated by quite a distance. Sometimes it's the angle and the perspective you're looking at. Well, in the New Testament, we understand now that there is this period of time, this already not yet that we are in. The kingdom of God has come, and yet it is coming. We see the kingdom of God, yet the kingdom of God is coming, again, in its fullness. And that's where we're at today, aren't we? John the Baptist is an example of someone who did not understand this. You remember he preached that the wrath of God is going to come like unquenchable fire burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And that's what he preached. And then what happens? He finds himself in jail. He's in jail. And so he, he sends his disciples to go to Jesus 
to ask him, are you the coming one or not? Is this the kingdom of God that I preached about? And what did Jesus tell him? Yes. Yes, it is. He, said, he, he points him to the miracles he was doing that displayed the kingdom of God in their midst. So this is all God's plan. Jesus was showing that he is the one who brings the fullness of the kingdom, and it comes in his way, in his timing, and one day he will come again, and we will see the fullness of his kingdom exactly as he planned. So not only do we see that everything will be transformed to reflect his glory, but also you will be brought into the glorious presence of God himself. And we see this in verse 10. You see, your destination is Zion. Your destination is the presence of God. Wherever Zion is, is where God is. This represents the presence of God himself. You are going home. You are going to where you belong. And your home is where God is. That's where you belong. Does this mean you're headed towards eternal boredom? Where sadness reigns? Where sorrow reigns? Will there be sighing? Absolutely, emphatically not. <laughs> what it says here is it piles on all these positive and negative words to emphatically say to you that this will be everlasting joy, everlasting gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You know, in this world, uh, the joy that we have is passing, isn't it? It kind of leaves us hanging all the time. Well, not so in the presence of God. It'll be fullness, everlasting gladness and joy in God's presence. And this gladness is expressed here, isn't it, with singing. That's how we express the gladness we have in our heart, with singing. Yes, even I will sing, and none of us will be able to hold it back. We will sing to our God. We will return like the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son when he returned to his father? He did not expect to see the warm embrace that he would receive. He didn't expect to see that banquet that his father would provide for him. And we have no idea what awaits us, just like the prodigal son. We have no idea. We can't even comprehend it. You also need to be encouraged by understanding where you are at now in relationship to the scheme of salvation. You see, because we live in a world that is not there yet, we can sometimes feel lost. We can sometimes wonder, where am I? And what we need to understand, believer, is that you are on the highway of holiness that is leading you to the presence of God. We see this in verses 8 through 9. So the question is, why is this called a highway? What makes it a highway? And a highway is something that connects two cities, a road that connects two cities. And this highway is a road that connects the city of man with the city of God. God has provided a road in a way that connects us to himself and his presence. And this is the only road to the presence of God. There is no other way to God's presence than the highway of holiness. Such a road would have been familiar to the pilgrims who were traveling from Jerusalem on their pilgrimage, or traveling to Jerusalem on their pilgrimage that they would make three times a year. It was kind of a foretaste of the ultimate pilgrimage that we would take to the presence of God in Zion. How would you describe this highway of holiness? Well, it's obviously can be described 
as a road of holiness, as its name suggests. The road doesn't only lead us to holiness, right? It's leading us to the presence of God, but the road itself is a holy road. And only those who are holy will travel on it. Those who are holy will travel this road. It is also a road of faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus himself said he was the road when he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Do you notice there, Jesus says, I am the road of holiness. I am the road to the Father. And so this road is really the life of faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it is. It's living by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what that road is that it's talking about here. The question is, who are not going to be on this road? And we're told we're not going to be on this road, aren't we? The unclean will not pass over this road. The unclean represent those who are not holy. You know, it reminds us of Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way. Those who do it their way will not be on this road of holiness. They will not reach the presence of God. The fools will also not pass over this road. You see, this doesn't mean that foolish people, that, that, that foolish people are going to cross this road. It means foolish people in Isaiah refers to those who mock God and make fun of God and do not believe in God. And so here it says that they won't accidentally stumble on this road. They won't make it to this road at all. It also says, vicious beasts shall not be on this road. You see, a lion will not pass on this road. They won't make it to God's presence, nor will they be a fearful danger for those who are traveling on the road. God will protect his people from the vicious beasts that we saw in chapter 34. Remember, chapter 34, in this world that was deconstructed, vicious beasts roamed the, 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 the place where the wrath of God was present. But here, the beasts are not allowed to endanger his people. You know, it's interesting when you read Pilgrim's Progress. As Christian walks to the celestial city, he finds that he sees lions along the way. But then when he looks a little closer, he notices that the lions are chained up and they can't reach the road that he is on. So as long as he stays on the road, he is not in danger of the lions. And how true is that for us? So who are on this road? Those who are pursuing holiness. Those whose hearts are transformed. Those who are learning to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. Those who are being conformed to God through his word. There is no holiness apart from the spirit of God through his word. That is what transforms us and changes us into holy people. Now, this is certainly a struggle, isn't it? But it's a real struggle and it's a good struggle. And this struggle and this holiness only comes about by the grace of God, not because of our goodness, but because of his amazing transforming grace. It also says the redeemed are on this road. Those are the same people, aren't they? A similar word for ransom a similar word for redeemed is ransomed, and we see that in verse 10 as well. Both of these describe believers. This, these words mean they have to do with being purchased or rescued at a great price. And we know that Christ has purchased us at an 
incalculable price, an in incredible price, one we could never comprehend or imagine. He has ransomed us. He has redeemed us. He has rescued us. Every believer is therefore on this road because every believer is redeemed and every believer is ransomed. They are on the road of holiness. Finally, the exiles and pilgrims are on this road. You see, we are going home. We don't belong here. We're going to our home where we belong. And this road is the way to get there. Are you on this road to the fullness of joy, to the presence of God? You see, in reality, there are many who claim to be on this road, but I would question whether they really are. This is not about whether you've made a profession of faith in the past. It is about whether you are living by faith today. Are you growing to become more like Christ? Are you living a life of repentance? Are you pursuing God? Do you see him as your great treasure? I, th I don't think there's anything more dangerous than telling people they are going to heaven who have made a profession of faith but are not living as if, as if they're actually on the road to heaven. You see, you can search the whole Bible and you will not find encouragement for those who are not walking by faith. If you are living by faith, on the other hand, then you are on this road and you should praise God. Be encouraged you are going home. Be encouraged you are pursuing lasting joy. Be encouraged you are going in the right direction. Praise God you are going home. You also need to know how to encourage your own soul and how to encourage the soul of others to persevere in faith on this highway of holiness. In this way, you can persevere safely to the final destination. So how do you encourage your soul? How do you encourage the soul of others? Well, we see in verses three through four, we see the description of God's people that we need encouragement. Look how they are described. We are described as having weak hands, feeble knees, an anxious, racing heart. What does this mean? What does weak knees, uh, shaking knees and weak hands and an anxious heart mean? Well, it means that we are fearful. It means that we are fearful people and we live in fearful times and we are easily discouraged. It means that we need encouragement. And we see such fearful responses throughout the Bible just so we can know what they're talking about here. Remember King Belshazzar. Remember his knees were knocking when God wrote on the wall. He was terrified. He was in great fear. Remember in Isaiah chapter 7, Judah, when they were told of the threat of Syria and Israel, how they shook with fear as the trees shake in the wind. Remember how little Jerusalem responded to the Assyrian reproach, approach. They were terrified. They were terrified. Is this you at times? Do you ever become fearful? Do you ever become discouraged? Do you ever become anxious at heart? Well, if you are like me, then you have to say yes, and you are like me. We all get that way. So why do you get fearful? Why do we get this way? And the answer is because the world looks really big and we look really small. And not only that, but God appears very small to us and he appears so far away. 
You see, there are so many different circumstances that can bring this on in our lives. It can bring this to, to the surface of our lives, this fear. We might suddenly just recognize the greatness of this world and the smallness of ourselves. And it might appear to us like God is far away for no apparent reason. But it might be diseases like the coronavirus. This little tiny virus that we can't see. And yet it is so powerful that it can kill us. It could be such things as just death in general. It could be plans that we had thought of and desired and longed for that just don't come to pass in our lives. But we know that whenever we become fearful, it's because God appears small and distant and the world appears big and close by. And such fear threatens to paralyze us by keeping us from walking the path of faith. Such fear is what turned Judah towards Egypt for safety when the Assyrians were coming after them. Such fear is what turns our hearts to look for salvation outside of God. Such fear is what turns us to fill ourselves with the entertainment of this world, to somehow numb ourselves and to escape to the entertainment of this world. So what is God's command for his believing children? The answer is, fear not, be strong, straighten up. We see this in verse 3. In other words, live by faith. Don't fall away. Don't turn towards unbelief. And so how could we not fear? How can we do this? How can we live with courage? How can we live without fear in this world? It sounds illogical. But listen to the answer here. The answer for why we should not fear and why we should be strong is behold, your God will come. That's the answer. You see, the Lord is near. Behold, God has not forgotten you. Behold, God is coming to save. Behold, your God, he is coming. And this is good news. The good news, the gospel, is God is coming, and he is coming to save his people. So what is it about this coming that should remove our fears and make us courageous? Well, it says here, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save and save you. Salvation means that God is going to judge our enemies. No longer will they be in opposition to us. No longer will they be any danger. God will deliver us from our enemies. He will judge our enemies. And he'll bring us safely into his presence. That is our salvation. Praise God. He will bring us into the perfect kingdom without any fear. And so this is how we are to encourage our hearts to persevere. And this is how we are to encourage others' hearts to persevere. You must remember who God is. Recognize his incomparable character. Behold your God. You must remember what he has done. This is the reason that he is for you. Because of what he has done. Because he went to the cross. He came to us, went to the cross. He died and rose victorious, defeating every enemy that stood against us. He is for you. You must remember that he is coming again for you. Behold, your God hasn't forgotten you. He's coming again. The means of encouragement hasn't changed for centuries. 
Our forefathers, who were courageous and lived by faith, lived that way because they were looking to the promises of God. They kept the reality of God in the forefront of their minds, always. This is how Jesus was able to endure the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. They endured because the reality of God and his salvation was constantly in front of them. Is this what encourages your heart the most? Behold your God, is that what encourages you daily? Is this how you are encouraging other believers around you? Behold your God? When you get up in the morning, do you think, my God is coming? Does that encourage your soul? Do you tell others, God is for you, he is coming, don't give up? If not, then you better start. This is how we encourage each other. This is how we most encourage each other. The problem is that some of us don't even think it's our responsibility to encourage each other. And some of us don't know how. But it is our responsibility, and this is how we do it. You know, this is one reason where I am thankful for the coronavirus. And I am not thankful for the pain that has come upon people. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am thankful for is that this has forced us to behave like the church. This has forced us to learn how to encourage each other in the faith. It has forced me out of my comfort zone to minister to you better. It has given me the opportunity to encourage you in the faith. It has helped us move beyond the question of how are you doing? To look to Christ. And isn't that a great thing when that happens? See, this is teaching me and you how to give encouragement and how to receive encouragement. Some of you need to learn how to receive encouragement. I bring you encouragement. You can tell that you need to learn how to receive it. Some of you have responded with great joy when I said, I'm going to read the scriptures to you. I'm going to pray with you. There's a response of great joy. That means you understand how to receive encouragement. And so this is great. This is great for us that we are learning how to receive encouragement from each other. Did you know that I need encouragement from you as well? You see, it's nice of you to ask me how I'm doing, but I really need to hear that Christ is coming. It's nice of you to give me constructive criticism every once in a while, and then mm. praise every once in a while. That's helpful at times, but it's much more helpful for you to tell me that Christ is coming. Remind me that he is coming. Please preach to me. I need you to preach to my soul. See, sometimes people think that pastors already know it, that you can't teach them anything. But this is the thing. I don't need necessarily anything new. I need to hear what I already know. I need to be reminded that Christ is coming. You see, the apostles didn't think they needed to say anything new in their letters, did they? They kept reminding us of the same thing. So please remind me that Christ is coming. And let us keep reminding each other Christ is coming. And I need to keep reminding you Christ is coming. He is not forgotten. So there are two types of people in the world. Those who are in rebellion against God and those who have bowed their knees to God in faith. That's the fundamental difference between everybody in this world. You're in one group or the other. There are two opposite destinations for each of these two types of people. 
Those under God's wrath are headed for his judgment. Those under God's favor are headed for his salvation. There is no other destination possible. If you remain outside of Christ, there is no encouragement for you. There is no encouragement I can give you. There is nothing I can say that is encouraging for you. The only safe place for you is in Christ Jesus. The Bible describes salvation as being in Christ more than any other way in the Bible. Being in him is the only safety place from the flood of God's wrath that is coming. You see, you can kind of understand it like being in the ark. Remember the flood that came upon the world? That flood was the waters of God's wrath that he was pouring out on the world. And my question for you is, how were they saved from God's wrath? When the floods came upon them, were they saved because of their church attendance? Would they be saved from the flood? No. Would they be saved because of their good works? The answer is no. The only way to be saved from the wrath was to be in that ark. That's the only way to be saved from the floods that came upon them. In a similar way, the only way to be saved from God's wrath is to be in Christ. And how do you know if you're in Christ? The Bible says you know if you're in Christ if you are living by faith in him. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And that's how we escape. That's how we are safe from the wrath of God and experience his salvation. If you are in Christ, even the weakest among us are perfectly safe. God is coming to save you. His love and power are towards you. He is immeasurably great in his love and his power towards you. You can't ever comprehend it, the greatness of it. You are in good hands. You lack nothing. Be encouraged. Everything is for you. Believers, this passage is for your encouragement. You have every reason to be encouraged today. God is coming in love and power for you. He has not forgotten you and he has not forgotten me. This encouragement is not that you can rest on your laurels, but rather so you can live with courageous faith. You see, speak the truth courageously. That should be our response. Live sacrificial lives in conformity to the word of God. What can we lose? The answer is nothing. If we give up everything in this world, we lose nothing because we have everything in Christ. Live courageous lives. Let's pray. Dear Father, you, almighty God, are on your throne today. You are reigning in great power and might. You are the God who is just and righteous. And Lord, we thank you for your great salvation that you have brought to us. Lord, thank you that you have come to rescue us from your judgment. You have come to bring us into your your glorious goodness, the abundance of your goodness through Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for your great favor that you've poured out on us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the safety that we have in you. Thank you for the encouragement and the comfort we have today. Lord, all is comfort for us. And we thank you for that. All is encouragement for your people. We thank you for that. And I pray that you would make us courageous. I pray that you would help us to see your nearness. I pray that you would help us to see your great salvation, that you are coming to save us. And Lord, I pray that your great glory would cause us to live courageous lives. Help us to live courageous lives. Help to speak the truth boldly to those around us.
and help us to live holy lives following after your example. Lord, we thank you for all that you are. We thank you for your kingdom that is coming. And I pray for those who are outside of your kingdom, those who are at this moment facing the wrath of God, I pray that you would deliver them into your kingdom. I pray that you would open their eyes up to the glory of who you are, open their ears and their hearts to see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.